Hello, sci-fi and thriller fans, and welcome to Brian Johnston's Death Warrant. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of Brian Johnston's gripping dystopian tale, Death Warrant. It's a story that takes place in a world where financial burdens can be completely eliminated by signing up to be on the most popular television program on the planet, Death Warrant. There's only one catch. Volunteers are assassinated for the audience's viewing pleasure. And once you've agreed to be on the show, your memory of the contract is wiped, so you have no idea how or when you'll be killed, or even that you're a target at all. Frankie is a low-rent stage performer who decides to sacrifice herself in order to secure enough money to save her brother. Once the deal is made and her memory is wiped, she has no idea she will be killed in a spectacular fashion. But we do. Every person Frankie encounters could be her killer. Every day could be her last. And all the while, she's preparing for the biggest performance of her life that could make her a star. If only she lives that long. This unputdownable book will have you looking over your shoulder, wondering who can be trusted. It's a book to live in. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of Death Warrant for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to Death Warrant now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. The first two episodes of every book can always be found on Camcat Unwrapped, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. So subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped, and if you love this story, you can support the author by buying their audiobook. The story opens with Joey, a man who has taken a trip to the farthest reaches of Norway. Little does he know, he's about to become a television ratings darling in a most unpleasant fashion. CamCut Publishing presents Death Warrant by Brian Johnston. Narrated by Justine Eyre and Holly Palance. Prologue. Jesus, thought Joey, stopping to catch his breath while simultaneously chastising himself for using the Lord's name in vain. They'd said the hike was challenging, even by hardy Norwegian mountaineering standards, but he didn't realize challenging was code for your lungs will be bleeding. Probably not too demanding for a younger person, but he grudgingly admitted he no longer fit that demographic. Those advancing middle years made his little adventures even more important to him. He took a swig from his water bottle and checked his watch. He'd been making good time. That's why you trained for six months, dummy, he reminded himself for the umpteenth time, not that anyone could hear him. He'd seen a few hikers coming back down the mountain, but to his surprise, he hadn't seen anyone else making the ascent. 
He purposefully picked the least touristy season that didn't include several feet of snow to make his bucket list trip. But still, he'd expected to see a few more people. Not that he was complaining. He was enjoying the solitude. With one last cleansing breath and the taste of copper dissipating from his mouth, he got to his feet for the final push. On the climb, he'd taken to talking to himself, carrying on conversations out loud, playing the part of all parties involved. He'd found it highly entertaining, and it helped keep his mind off the lactic acid burning in his thighs over the five-hour climb. Why in heaven's name does it have to be Norway? It's so far away, Joey said out loud, in the closest resemblance of his wife Joni's patented, exasperated tone. He'd had 30 years of marriage to fine-tune it. Because that's where the troll Tonga is, hun, Joey replied. He vividly remembered when the hollow brochure had arrived. Have you ever seen anything like it, he asked her? She hadn't. The 3D image projected by the brochure had been impressive, and even his wife couldn't deny that. The Trolltunga was a rock formation that sprang 2,000 feet straight up above the north end of a Norwegian lake, whose name Joni could never pronounce, and was topped with a cliff that jutted out preposterously far, like an enormous plank of a pirate ship. Watching the image slowly rotating over the brochure on their dining room table had sealed the deal. Joey could taste the copper again, but powered through. He knew he was almost there. Should have brought the stick, genius, he grumbled to himself. That's what hiking staffs are for. But he'd been afraid some careless baggage handler would damage it. The staff had been too important to him. The entire Boy Scout troop had carved their names into it, along with the final inscription, thanks for all your years of service. He wasn't sure who was prouder of the gift, him or Joni. Regardless, the staff would have been a help. His research showed that the round-trip climb would be about 22 kilometers, 45,000 steps, and the equivalent of climbing and descending 341 floors, he guessed he was right around floor 170, almost there. As he rounded a large boulder, he thought back on all his training, preparation, and admittedly, the inconveniences he'd put Joni through, and recited one of his wife's favorite admonitions. Joey doll, I swear you will be the death of me. But then, what he saw stopped him in his tracks. At that moment, Joey felt complete validation. He also instantly understood what made the Trolltunga such a draw for thrill-seekers. The cliff's edge reached out so far that the photo op was one for the books, the type of picture you frame and hang in your den, a conversation starter. Bragging rights, the other church deacons were going to be sick of hearing about it. Oh, babe, Joey said, more to himself this time. I wish you were here to see this. But even six months ago, he knew that was never going to happen, what with her condition. But she was never going to begrudge him this trip. He'd been dreaming about it for years. It took a certain person, one immune to heights and vertigo, to walk to that cliff's edge and look out. 
Joey was one of those people. He set up the small portable tripod he'd brought and mounted his mobile device, his optic, to take pictures and video remotely. He couldn't wait to show it to Joni and the kids. Through a little trial and error, he eventually got the framing right and strode out to the edge. He turned to face the camera and spread his arms wide in a look at what I achieved pose. The optics camera lens clicked once, twice, three times. And then the bullet hit him right above the left eye. Joey Dahl dropped like Icarus, toppling backwards off the cliff, falling into space, like a base jumper without a wingsuit or parachute. His body tumbled down the sheer cliff face, yet he never quite hit the side. His body stayed clear of the rocky wall due to the sharp drafts from the lake below. The constant pushing away from the wall managed to keep him undamaged, bullet wound aside until he finally met the ground below by a lake whose name his wife never could pronounce. By then, however, he'd been long dead. 6,000 miles away, a room full of people in finely tailored suits and skirts were watching intently, applauding with their approval. One of them, a woman with severe bangs, all business, smoothly pivoted from the wall of monitors her eyes drawn to another, smaller screen, where a series of numbers were appearing in real time. She allowed herself a trace of a smile. The ratings were in, perhaps not matching those of the pop star's demise from last summer, but still, better than management had expected, enough to trigger her bonus. Maybe she'd take the kids to Six Flags. Chapter One, January. If you're going to be summarily executed, you'd at least want the place that's arranging your death to have a couple of nice rugs, just for appearances. Nobody wants to be offed by some fly-by-night outfit that considers Ikea the height of corporate decor. As it turns out, I needn't have worried. I really didn't know what to expect. They don't show the offices on the commercials. I knew it probably wouldn't be like walking into a tax prep firm in a strip mall, some tiny space filled with cheap furniture, all pleather and particle board. It is anything but, and instantly fills me with a good vibe and reinforces my belief that I am making the right choice. The entry doors are an artistic combination of rich, amber-hued wood, glass, and burnished metal, most likely brass, but buffed dull to appear understated, classy, you feel like you are walking into a place of importance, where critical decisions are made on a by-minute basis, which I guess they are. Upon entering, I'm greeted by a kindly gentleman with open arms. Welcome, Miss Percival. We're so pleased to see you, he says with utter sincerity. Our receptionist will take care of your every need. It takes me a second to realize the man is a hologram. I take a step closer and poke at it, which the holographic gentleman tolerates with a smile. Only the subtlest flicker gives away its true identity. For more than a few feet away, you'd swear the man was flesh and blood. Hollows are common these days, but this one takes the cake. The technology they have here obviously is top shelf stuff. 
Based on the greeting, they had me scanned and identified the moment I stepped through the front door. I immediately pick up on the smell, lavender. It's subtle but noticeable. Upon deeper consideration, the perfect scent. It's probably the world's most relaxing smell. Smells have a stronger link to memories than any of the senses, and I can feel myself imprinting the scent with the experience. What did my high school teacher always say? Smells ring bells. True that. I'll probably go to my grave associating that smell with this place. Ha, go to my grave. Bad choice of words for this visit. The lobby floor is a combination of real hardwoods and Persian rugs, so soft you instantly want to take your shoes off for the sheer sensory experience. The space feels more like the lobby of a four-star hotel, tasteful, elegant, contemporary without pressing the issue. The woman behind the reception desk is perfectly in line with the ambiance. She is probably in her late 30s, attractive but non-threatening. I like the cut of her jib, as my mom used to say. Her clothes are professional, but still fashionable. If I were to guess, they were most likely chosen for her by a consultant, like news anchors choose their clothes to project an image of trustworthiness. When I approach the desk, her face lights up with one of the most endearing smiles I have ever witnessed. I lean in a bit and squint to make sure she's real. Yep, carbon-based life form. How may I help you, she asks, and I absolutely believe she means it. I'm here to get whacked. I mimic guns with my fingers, firing off a couple rounds at her before blowing the non-existent smoke from the barrels. When I'm nervous, I say stupid stuff. Stupid or snarky? Stupid, snarky, or sarcastic. I've been attempting to pare it down to just one for the last 10 years with mixed results. I try to sound like being here is no biggie, but my voice sounds shrill in my ears, and I seriously doubt my antiperspirant is up to the challenge. The woman, unfazed by my cavalier attitude, nods with a soft, endearing smile. Of course, you can speak with one of our sales associates. Please take a seat. Someone will be with you in a moment. She gestures to a cozy waiting area with a half dozen comfortable-looking chairs, one of them occupied by a distinguished-looking woman, idly paging through an issue of Vanity Fair, one of the last media holdouts that still clings to the quaint notion of publishing on paper. I can see an A-list actress of some substance, gracing the cover, dressed in a bold red riding jacket, khaki jodhpurs, and knee-high boots. I can practically hear the baying of the hounds. The actress is currently all the rage and the expected shoe-in come award time for her role in a recent high-profile drama that has captured the country's imagination. A period piece that boasts betrayal, star-crossed love, and overcoming staggering odds in the face of adversity. Or at least that's what the trailers led me to believe. I turn back to the receptionist. So, how's it work? Pardon, she asks innocently. I mean, do you get to choose? Sniper shot, blown up, pitched into a vat of acid. There was one episode, brutal. They dropped a piano on the guy, like in a cartoon. I also yap when I'm nervous. The receptionist's smile doesn't waver. I remember it well. She gives me a polite nod and says, your sales associate will answer all of your questions, and then tips her head in the direction of where the woman with a magazine is sitting. With a wink, I fire off another round at the receptionist. 
holster my hands in my pockets, and turn toward the waiting area. Jesus, she must think I'm a moron. I take a seat several chairs away from my silver-haired counterpart. She glances up at me and gives the tiniest of polite smiles, held a beat longer than is socially necessary, before turning her attention back to her magazine. In that singular moment, we become confederates, there for the same reason, and she is acknowledging to me with that brief exchange that regardless of my race, sex, social standing, or political leanings, that I, we, are about to become members of a rather unique club. All for one, one for all. My distinguished clubmate looks, well, prominent. The cut of her suit speaks of dinner parties of the well-heeled, where talk of debutantes and cotillions is not simply language of earlier generations. And that's what's puzzling. I'd simply assumed this place was not frequented by the 1%. I mean, why would they need to resort to this measure? They're all loaded. They've got the means to provide for their family members without going to the extremes this joint provides. It then dawns on me that maybe not everyone here is doing this for the money. But why else? Fame? Boredom? A moment later, a slim middle-aged woman with flawless hair approaches and addresses my clubmate. She rises to her feet, shakes the proffered associate's hand, and off they go. It is now just me and the glossy A-lister. I don't even have a chance to pick up the magazine before my appointed sales associate arrives to greet me. If there ever was a physical embodiment of warmth and compassion, he stands before me. He introduces himself as Benjamin, and I can no sooner call him Ben than flap my arms and fly to the moon. To call him Ben would be an affront. This is Benjamin, the type of man who walks one step behind his wife, who enters a room of strangers with his hand on the small of her back to let her know he's right there with her. Benjamin is clearly a man who listens more than he speaks and gives careful consideration before he does. This is my three-second impression. Benjamin appears to be maybe a decade older than me, in the early throes of middle age with salt and pepper hair receding, in baseball terms, at the power alleys of his forehead. He wears a nice-fitting suit of deep blue with the thinnest of pinstripes. His shoes, brown, match his eyes. It's the eyes that support everything. His whole demeanor, his warmth, radiates from those dark twins, but I can see upon further review that the smile that rides along with them is what seals the deal. The smile and eyes work in tandem. One without the other, strong, but together, unimpeachable. I would buy a Rolex out of the trunk of this guy's car. Benjamin shakes my hand and asks me to join him in his office where we can chat. That's what he says, chat, not talk. The perfect word to set my mind at ease. Just two pals. His office is small but nicely appointed and has a window overlooking a wooded urban park. The lavender scent follows us into the room, which I appreciate. Benjamin offers me a seat in front of his desk and takes the chair behind it. The desk is tidy, with nothing but a couple of framed family photos, a world's most okayest employee mug, and a glass computer tablet mounted on a small, low-profile frame to keep it upright when he chooses to use it in that position. Benjamin steeples his hands on his desk and fixes me with those molten lava cake eyes. So, Francis, he begins, 
not Miss Percival, but Francis. You'd like to learn more about, he glances at his glass tablet and looks up with a small smile. How to get whacked? Pretty much, and by the way, you can call me Frankie. Then Frankie it is, and by the way, it's okay, you can call it by its official name, a death warrant. Fair enough. How much do you know about the process? Benjamin asks evenly. He says process with a long O. Benjamin has what used to be called a transatlantic accent. You'd hear it all the time in ancient movies with actors like Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. It's halfway between a British and American accent, like something taught at a New England boarding school. It sounds define. I shrug. Not much. How come there's hardly anything about it on the internet? I mean, that's pretty crazy that you're able to keep it so hush-hush. Benjamin nods and smiles compassionately. It is rather amazing, isn't it? You'd think someone would talk. Somebody always talks. I'm embarrassed to say I really don't know. And I believe him. And yet virtually nothing shows up in the media, I observe, probably a little more pointedly than intended. But Benjamin doesn't seem to mind. He holds his hands out, shoulders arched in the classic, beats me pose. Those are the interior machinations of the machine that are a mystery, even to me. Ask me what time it is, and I can tell you. Ask me how the watch works, and I can't. Much of the information is purely on a need-to-know basis. And you don't need to know, I ask. Way above my pay grade. We're highly compartmentalized. He can see my skepticism. Rest assured, I can answer most of your questions. He settles back into his chair, and that's when it occurs to me. The eyes, brown. The receptionist's eyes were brown. The other sales associate's eyes were brown. Don't ask me how I notice this. It's what I do. I notice things. Little stuff that often is of no consequence. That's why I was always a fan of Sherlock Holmes' mysteries. He noticed things. While others saw, he observed. I thought that was cool. We were kindred spirits. Of course, his gift of observation made nonsense of mine. But the one thing I have going for me is that I am nonfiction. I live in the real world. What I don't have is the benefit of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle ensuring that I can spot a scuff on a shoe and divine that the culprit had brushed it against a curb in a rush to catch the number five bus. It's bullshit, but it's entertaining bullshit. Instead, my ability to notice things on a high but more realistic level has made me reasonably successful in my career. I'm a mentalist. My job is to observe, take note, listen and connect dots that others don't see. I suppose I could be a cop or a private investigator, but that seems like work. Being a mentalist, on the other hand, is fun. We're like magicians, but without the corny patter. Do I really have the gift of divination and clairvoyance? Sometimes it sure as hell feels like it. Let's just say I've got a knack. However, a byproduct of my keen perception is an overactive imagination. I'll sometimes see things for more than they are, but it does make life more interesting. Back to the brown eyes. Of course, brown eyes are soft, they're compassionate. Blue eyes are striking, but in a place like this, you don't want striking. You want everything to be the Xanax of appearance. Calming, 
I'll bet every public-facing employee here has brown eyes. In fact, I would imagine they're all screened by a team of consultants to within an inch of their lives to fit specific criteria. A place like this probably only hires people who radiate kindness. I wonder how they measure that. There's gotta be some way to quantify a person's level of kindness and compassion beyond spending five minutes in a room with them. With today's technology, I'm sure someone's found a way to figure out the analytics, to make it measurable. Benjamin breaks into a smile, no less cozy than an electric blanket. So, what would you like to know? Uh, how about you tell me what you can, and I'll ask questions as they come to me. Benjamin gives a short nod. Certainly. Let's begin with a 30,000-foot view, and for clarity's sake, I will use vernacular that I'm technically not supposed to. You will be killed, and your death will be televised. Pretty damn clear vernacular, I say. Benjamin is all smiles. I know, right? Gets to the meat of it pretty quick. What did you mean by vernacular you're not supposed to use, I ask. Part of our internal policies, company culture, Benjamin says amiably. Our programs are to be referred to as episodes, not shows. There are no victims but participants or souls, and all participants will be shown the highest respect and dignity. Mighty neighborly of you. Thank you, says Benjamin, looking sincerely appreciative of my comment, despite its snark. Let me see if I can guess your next question, he asks. How does it work? You've done this before, Benjamin. Once or twice. We've got plenty of packages to choose from, depending on your budget, time frame, and other factors. What kind of factors? Benjamin turns his eyes to his glass tablet, makes a few taps and swipes to call up the necessary information. Do you care if it's clean or messy? Quick and painless, or would you rather feel the experience? Do you want a run-of-the-mill termination, or something more exotic? Who the hell wants to feel the experience of dying? You'd be surprised. There are some people who want to embrace their last moments on Earth. I'm told they think that's when they feel most alive. That's wacko. Preaching to the choir here, Frankie. Just a couple of pals. What do you mean by exotic? Benjamin leans back in his chair and stares up at the ceiling for a moment, collecting his thoughts. Well, there was one we did a few years back that struck me as outside the lines, as well as being spectacularly challenging. What was that? Piranha attack, and he lived in the city. No shit. That one took some serious production to pull off. We had to bring in twice our normal crew, but it was worth it. The ratings were outstanding. How outstanding, I ask. Are you familiar with ratings? A little. Benjamin taps on his glass tablet. Piranha attack, 48.8 rating, 71 share. He informs me that a rating point is a percentage of the total viewing population being polled, and the share is the percentage of that population that's watching at that moment. So that meant almost half of the country was watching, and 70% of those who had their TVs, computers, or optics on were tuned in. I wonder what the other 30% were watching. Holy crap, those are Super World Bowl numbers. Actually, a little higher. 
And I read that a 30-second ad in that game runs for $10 million. Benjamin ruminates for a beat. 10.2, last I checked. This is where the rubber meets the road, where the money comes into play. So how does it work, money-wise, I mean? Benjamin clasps his hands in front of him, and his face takes on an astonishing look of grace. I don't know what they are paying him, but it isn't enough. My brain is having a difficult time reconciling the fact that this man, who looks and sounds like a warm bath, works for a company that kills people for profit. Certainly, he says. This is why you've come in, so your family will be sufficiently provided for after your passing. His demeanor strikes me as that of a funeral director, talking costs for the casket, flowers, and organist. A tricky balancing act, put the client at ease while doing your job to assure you're keeping the company in the black so the owner can continue to pay his gas bills, the mortgage, and take his kids to Disneyland. If you choose to move forward with our services, you will pay a fee, earnest money, as it were, again, based on some of the criteria I listed earlier, time frame, complexity. Benjamin pauses for an instant, like it's important to him that the following line land properly. The upfront fee is to ensure we aren't seen as preying on the desperate. I can see how some might get that impression, I reply with a straight face. Benjamin smiles at my understanding. Once our service is rendered and your passing is confirmed, your designee, the dependent, as it were, will receive a percentage of the advertising revenue brought in by the televised production. And I am guessing the more elaborate the production, the higher the ratings, and therefore more money for the, what did you call it? The designee? Benjamin cocks an eyebrow. Usually, but not necessarily. I've seen some pretty pedestrian terminations receive quite robust ratings because of the backstory involved. Backstory? Well, the background that may give the episode a little more drama. Let me give you an example. Benjamin does the glance at the ceiling thing again, drawing on memories. There was one episode where the method of death was a simple blow-up. Explosives set to go off at a designated time and location. Nothing overly dramatic. But what gave it an extra twist was that on the day of the scheduled event, our client decided to take his dog for a walk. An unexpected deviation from his normal schedule. We were embarrassingly unprepared for this. All our research gave us a 99% chance that he would be alone at the time of detonation. But as fate would have it, that miscue on our part became a ratings bonanza. What did taking his dog for a walk have to do with any of that, I ask? Chris Miller had no idea Max, the gray-muzzled little lab mix padding alongside him, was causing conniptions in a television studio four states away. Well, padding was generous. It was more like limping or waddling. Max was pushing 98 in people years, and built like a kielbasa sausage, mostly due to Chris's soft heart and table scraps. Chris figured Max could eat anything he damn well pleased for as long as he lived. Seven years previously, Chris and Max had been hiking in Zion National Park when Chris fell down a crevasse and was pinned. He only had enough water to last about a day, but Max had run for help, just like in the classic Timmy fell down the well scenario. Ever since, 
Chris spoiled his aging Matt mercilessly. And that's what the people in the television studio hadn't foreseen. How long before he's at the optimal detonation coordinates? Asked the director. He dabbed an already moist handkerchief across his brow for the dozenth time in the last 15 minutes. 10 minutes, replied the field producer, an edge to her voice. She was crumpling and uncrumpling a paper cup in her fist that moments earlier had been half filled with water, which she had slugged down, desperately wishing it was something stronger. My team has the space cleared, no civilians present, at least for now. For the time being, everything is go. Nothing was go, thought the director. Things were far from go, but he had to keep a lid on it. He glanced up at the bank of monitors covering the control room wall. A half dozen or so showed audiences from around the globe watching the action, most at impromptu death warrant parties. The public did seem to bond in these instances. The director liked to see how the audience was reacting to the circumstances. It helped him craft the story arc, an emotional payout by seeing firsthand what they were responding to. At that moment, the audience members were generally freaking out. Nobody wanted to see a cute, albeit fat, little dog blown to bits. In the pre-show, the audience is given the opportunity to know the method of termination. It was impossible to guess which way they'd lean from episode to episode. Sometimes they wanted to know, other times they wanted to be surprised. On this night, however, the votes were for knowing. When the host shared that the death would be delivered by explosion, the initial reaction was overwhelmingly positive. Detonation was always a crowd pleaser. But the closer they got to boom time, the antsier the audience became. They didn't know the exact moment, but they did know that a little dog was more than likely going to be caught in a line of fire. Thus, the freaking out. How could nobody have seen this coming? shouted a large, imposing executive from the back of the room, a hint of a German accent in his voice. Not a soul dared make eye contact or a feeble excuse. That would have been career suicide. In circumstances like this, they resorted to their training, experience, and professionalism, which ran in abundance in this control room. They were the cream of the crop and liked to think they were prepared for any emergency. The director turned to a small, earnest-looking man huddled over a computer screen in the corner of the studio. Stats, what the hell? Why the dog? He was supposed to be solo. The lead statistician gave a shrug. Over the past 245 days since the job was approved, the featured participant made a nightly walk to this park 232 times. The man glanced back down to his monitor. He always left between 6 and 6.10 p.m. The statistician turned back to the director. It was, to use a more colloquial term, his evening constitutional. You could set your watch by him. Over those 232 times, he brought his dog along a grand total of two times. The man pointed at his screen. Based on our numbers, the odds of the featured participant taking the dog were less than 1%, well below our threshold. The field producer cleared her throat. Ah, evidently one of those new doggy cafes just opened on the far side of the park. You know, one of those trendy coffee shops that sell dog biscuits along with cappuccinos. Our, um, best guess is that Mr. Miller may be taking his dog there for a treat. Back over in the corner, the statistician shrugged again. 
Human nature is always the wild card. Human nature? The director stared the man down until the little statistician crumpled under his gaze and retreated to the safety of his computer screen. Human nature, my ass, thought the director. They had algorithms up the yin-yang and banks of computers for the sole purpose of mathing the shit out of human nature. He wasn't about to accept shrugs and excuses. He turned his attention to the demolitions expert, who was calmly watching three seats over. What's the circumference of the charge? Conformed to a 20-foot radius, came the reply. Basically like a small landmine, except more focused. The demolitions expert never took her eyes off the monitors, her voice never reaching above a calm, measured tone. I've never lost a civilian to friendly fire. I'm not about to start now. Yeah, well, we may lose a dog if we're not careful. The dog had been a huge factor when Chris had been accepted to participate in the show. The creative team determined that the backstory with the life-saving event at Zion National Park would be just the right emotional hook. A few of the newer crew members in the booth were no doubt wondering why the team had opted for a termination that might cause collateral damage. The longer-tenured crew already knew people love a good explosion, especially death-warrant explosions. They took tremendous pride in their craft. This demolitions expert in particular, she'd won an Emmy for her work in the fine art of blowing shit up. It was for an episode the previous year featuring a dental hygienist and a hang glider. Scored outstanding ratings. The demolitions team spent an inordinate amount of time crafting just the right amount of bang for the buck. And it had to be appropriate to the circumstances and look good on TV. That night, they needed a small charge, just big enough for one person and still appeal to the senses. Most real detonations caused little fire unless a lot of fuel was involved. Detonations usually just created a big boom, and that was it. Because of the special effects in movies, people had become accustomed to seeing fiery explosions. But the munitions team on this job were artists. They had worked for months to create just the right amount of flame in relation to the size of the charge and the sound. The director leaned over and asked the assistant director, Soto Voce, did you hear about the size of the charge for this one? The AD held her thumb and finger an inch apart, most likely an exaggeration, but made the point. The director whistled low. He was as curious as anyone to see the result. And still, the executive's words kept ringing in his ears. How could nobody have seen this coming? An hour earlier, millions of people across the globe who had the death warrant app on their optic heard the unmistakable notification ping, signifying someone's ticket was soon to be punched. Upon that ping, civilization ground to a halt and all eyes were glued to screens. The slickly produced opening title sequence reminded viewers that they were now watching the most popular television show in history. The hosts, as always, were personable, professional, and compassionate. The featured participant, Chris Miller, was given a stirring and emotional backstory and had absolutely no idea that he would be dead by show's end. Chris Miller's sister, the woman who was going to become a multimillionaire by the time she went to bed, was sitting in a coffee shop with friends when the ping sounded. When she saw that the soul, scheduled for termination, was her own flesh and blood, 
she immediately and hysterically called her brother. She was utterly confounded when the call wouldn't go through. For that matter, thousands of others trying to place calls, other than 911 calls to anyone within a hundred mile radius of where Chris and Max were strolling along, hit the same invisible barrier and never reached their intended target. Nobody within that zone received the ping either. So the thousands of people within that hundred mile radius were as ignorant of the coming events as Chris. The team of death warrant lawyers who managed to negotiate that dead zone with the FCC received hefty bonuses that Christmas. As a result, Chris received no call or warning and had no idea that he would never experience another sunrise. After weeks of deliberation and dozens of simulations, the consensus was for an hour-long pre-show. You needed enough time to give the audience the necessary backstory and a proper lead-up, but the thinking was that if you went to air too far ahead, there was more time for random occurrences. Life is unpredictable, as the dog's presence that night illustrated all too clearly. In a live broadcast, there's nothing as frustrating to a producer or director than an act of God. The countdown clock on the studio wall clicked closer to the scheduled time of detonation, while the director slowly ground the enamel from his molars, and the AD tapped her pen at subsonic speed. Studio executives watching the feed from remote locations, oblivious to the control room drama, thought it was marvelous. The director glanced at the treasonous clock. He was running out of options, and his mind wandered crazily to the thought of how much he would miss his 401k when he got fired. When suddenly up popped a good old-fashioned act of God, the good kind. Uh, boss, said one of the associate producers who was tracking the camera fixed on the dog. Something's up with the dog. All eyes turned to the portly little mutt, who was no longer walking alongside Chris, but had staggered left, then right, and then keeled over, like one of those fainting goats you'd see on nature shows, his tongue lolling out, shiny and pink. Biometrics, shouted the director into his headset mic. What are you showing? A medical team in another part of the building were busy tracking Chris's vitals down to his body temperature's third decimal. They quickly turned their scanners to the inert dog. The cost of the collection of scanners aimed at the dog was the equivalent of some third world country's GNP. At that moment, all that insanely expensive technology came to one unequivocal conclusion. Shit, he's dead. The director, a dog lover himself, who shamelessly doted on his own wire hair terrier, found himself having to use every ounce of his professionalism to keep from laughing out loud. It wouldn't have mattered. The entire control room burst into a cacophony of cheers and applause, professionalism be damned. How close is the target to the designated location? Shouted the director to the producer over the noise. Close enough, the area is clear, no one within 50 feet. The director turned to the executive, who in turn looked to the demolitions expert. The woman gave a quick look to each and nodded. The director broke into a wide smile and cracked his knuckles. He stole a glance at the monitors, showing the audience members, many of whom were openly crying at the death of the dog. But would they be crying when the dog's owner got blown to kingdom come? Doubtful. Fire when ready. 
The explosion was breathtaking in its symmetry, sound, and color. A pyrotechnic Mona Lisa, and no civilian casualties. I don't believe it, I say. Neither did we, replies Benjamin, absolutely glowing. I mean, we knew it was an old dog, easily 15 years and not exactly svelte, if you know what I mean. But seriously, what are the odds that this dog keels over literally T minus two minutes? Astronomical? Benjamin punches at his tablet. Our team ran the numbers, 1,353,482 to one. We should have bought lottery tickets. But there is something I don't understand, I say. The guy stopped. He hadn't reached the place where the bomb was located. They said, close enough. Benjamin gives me his all-knowing grin. Who said it was at a place? I think on this for a moment. The bomb was on him? Benjamin gives a single nod. His speedometer, we're fans of irony. I sit back, fanning my flushed face. Wow. Wow, indeed, and that's why it drew a 42 over 67, made it to our year-end special, took the People's Choice Award, if I remember correctly. We sit in comfortable silence for a moment, savoring the story's finish. Finally, I get back to brass tacks. How much money are we talking about here? The payout, I mean. Again, it all depends on the ratings, but let's say... And he taps and swipes on his tablet again. You have an average tune-in, say 35 rating. That's average, I say, truly surprised. A tad below average, but a good round number to work with. With a 35 rating, the client payout would be somewhere in the neighborhood of, tap, tap, swipe, $7.2 million. So I die and my designee collects $7 million? Point two, before taxes, yes. Better payout than a life insurance policy, I say a bit thoughtfully. I would agree, but we take many of the same precautions. For example, we will not take on a client who has been diagnosed with a terminal disease so they can cash in on their already impending death. They must be, as they say in the last will and testament biz, of sound mind and body. Good thinking. We believe so. We're silent for a moment, but the silence is soon broken by a subtle but repetitive squeak. I'm a nervous rocker. I stop and settle deeper into the chair, legs out, trying to look at ease. What are the upfront costs? I ask with a flip of my hand. Ballpark, all things being equal. Benjamin is polite enough to not acknowledge my lame attempts at casualness. For a typical job, average lead time, I'd say $50,000. $50,000 to reap a $7 million benefit? Seems like a steal. 7.2. We believe our service should be available to everyone, regardless of their social status. Still, fifty grand is isn't exactly chump change. Not everybody has that kind of money lying around. You are correct, but we can't exactly have a payment plan. Would you take someone with no down payment and accept payment out of the designee's windfall? No, we do not allow that. Why not, I ask. Benjamin gives his head a brisk shake. There's something unseemly about it. We want our clients to have thought this through carefully and planned accordingly. 
We don't want just anyone coming in off the street, looking for an easy way to make a buck. It can't be a spur-of-the-moment consideration. Each of our prospective clients are evaluated by a team of therapists, psychologists and counsellors, to make sure they are emotionally prepared to go through with the agreed-upon plan. Do you take everyone who meets your criteria? I ask. We do not. My chair resumes its squeaks, but I catch myself and stop rocking, only to replace it with rotating my chair back and forth. Um, how come? You'd be surprised at how many applicants we have. If we took all of them, the show would lose its appeal. Ratings would suffer. We have to be judicious in our selection. I get the rotating under control and nod sagely. Makes sense, I say. Do I get to dictate how I'll die? Unfortunately, no. We can create a plan for many factors, but the method is kept secret until showtime, for obvious reasons. What's the most commonly used method? A rifle shot to the head. Not terribly dramatic, but we can do it from a good distance away, it's painless, and it can be accomplished in a crowd. Remind me not to be in that crowd, I say with a ridiculous wink, and do the finger gun thing, firing off a couple rounds. Jesus, I'm a spaz. Benjamin merely smiles. I regroup, refocus. Where do you draw your talent? We only hire the most accomplished marksmen, almost all government trained, wet boys as they are commonly referred to in CIA parlance. Did you see the episode in Norway, at the Trolltunga? Sheer poetry. Ever kill people hand to hand, snap their neck, that kind of thing, I ask. Occasionally, but it's rare and risky. It takes enormous strength to break a person's neck with bare hands, says Benjamin, nodding sagely. You said some people want to feel the experience of dying. What's all that about? We've had ex-Special Forces clients who wanted their death to be up close and personal. An interesting proposition, in my opinion. Not exactly my cup of tea, but who am I to judge? Benjamin pauses for a beat. They wanted to know it was happening at the last minute. Why? Because they wanted to try to survive. Wait, what? They are special forces, huge egos. Think of themselves as the baddest men or women on the planet. They're willing to spend that 50,000 with the hopes that they can survive the attack. But then the person, the, uh, the designee. Right, the designee doesn't receive the payout. Benjamin lets slip a small chuckle. We do not believe that to be a concern. Why? This seems to give Benjamin pause, like the thought is beyond ridiculous. The production and planning that goes into our events, he breaks, searching. The chances are astronomically low that someone would survive. He indicates to his glass tablet. I can run the numbers if you like. That's okay, I'm good. Besides, he goes on, virtually all our participants want to die. They want to provide financial means for a loved one. His eyes rest on mine. Yes? I purse my lips and glance away. After an uncomfortable beat, I turn back. So you're saying no one's cheated death warrant? I say with a smirk, trying to lighten the mood. Benjamin accommodates me with a smile. Ah, oh, no, that would be bad for business. If someone ever survived, I'd be out of a job. He pauses an instant, biting his lip.
although one was close. He was a former Navy SEAL, about my age but still in tremendous shape. We had it set up so that our talent took a seat across from him at an outdoor cafe, gun already drawn and hidden below the table. The SEAL looked up, a little puzzled, and then his key word was said. Key word? Benjamin spreads his hands before Frankie. Like I said, some people want to know when it's going to happen, but for that to work, we have to use a keyword that literally wakes them up to the fact that the attack is about to happen. I'm confused, I say. Benjamin warms even more to the conversation. Clearly, this is a favorite subject for him. Hypnosis, says Benjamin simply. Hypnosis, I reply. Are you familiar with the concept? I'm a professional mentalist, so yeah, I say, with a slight edge of pride to my voice. Are you really, says Benjamin, and he looks sincerely surprised and impressed, even though I have no doubt he already knew that about me. That must be fascinating. It has its moments, I say. Excellent. Well, then, of course, you know the general principles. The person is made to be responsive to suggestion, in our case, the responsiveness must go deep. Think of it as hypnosis on steroids. We have developed methods that are exceedingly effective, says Benjamin. In this case, when our client came in for his initial consultation, he was embedded with a keyword that would awake him to the situation at the designated moment. So the client was cued to know that he was about to be attacked, I say. Precisely. The Manchurian candidate in reverse, I say. Pardon, says Benjamin. Sorry, the Manchurian candidate. Old movie. An assassin goes about his life not knowing he's been programmed to kill someone until a certain word, a key word, is mentioned, at which point he carries through with his task. In your case, the victim becomes aware of his impending assassination at the given moment. Like I said, the Manchurian candidate in reverse. Benjamin looks considerably impressed. Fascinating. I've never heard it referenced in that way before. So what happened, I ask? Oh, said Benjamin, snapping back into his original story. The client immediately recognized the situation for what it was, ignored all forms of defense, and went straight into attack mode. He threw his water glass into our talent's face and lunged across the table, our talent fired and the shot wounded the client, but didn't stop him. The client was able to disarm our talent by driving a steak knife into our talent's gun hand. They went at it, hand to hand, for a good few seconds, and I'll be frank, it was touch and go. But our talent's youth and training finally got the upper hand. He was able to put him in a chokehold, and eventually drove that same steak knife into the client's eye. Yikes. Indeed. But it was superb television. I'm surprised you didn't see it. A popular episode. My loss, I say, trying to sound honest. The vast majority of the population is addicted to death warrant. It is the most popular television show on Earth. Yet I'm not quite as enthralled with it as everyone else. It's the most binge-watched program in history. I don't remember when we as a society became inured to death. It was a slow process, creeping up on us over decades. But when Death Warren aired for the first time, the reaction was sweeping and instantaneous. 
You would think there would be some part of civilization, some faction who still held life in high regard. But if they existed, they didn't make their presence felt. Who knows, maybe the show would have been a hit 50 years ago, and we didn't realize how emotionally dead we were until some hot shit pitched the idea to a network executive. Benjamin continues. So a gentleman came in requesting a quick turn job, the equivalent of a mob hit, not terribly dramatic. That's why the quick turns don't have the same payout. Sponsors want time for a little more backstory, although there is something to be said for the element of surprise. The viewers know it's a smash-and-grab job, so they're curious to see how we carry out the termination on such short notice. Maybe he wanted a quick turn, I say, so he wouldn't have to stress about knowing his number was coming up and the Grim Reaper could be waiting around every corner. Ah, oh, says Benjamin, and he raises a knowing finger. Here's the beauty of it. They never know until it's too late. What do you mean they never know? If I sign my paperwork and walk out this door, it's going to be on my mind 24-7. I'll always be wondering if any person I see has a bullet with my name on it. I pause a moment, rubbing my temples. And this is the part that always makes my brain hurt. Everyone who dies on the show never seems to be afraid or paranoid. They don't appear to be looking over their shoulder. How is that even possible? They signed up. They know they're going to die. I'm working myself into a good lather. This was a mystery that always bugged me. But my minor freakout doesn't even phase Benjamin as he dials up a level of compassion that could bake cookies. Frankie, you said yourself that there's virtually no information online about how we do what we do. And have you noticed that no one you've ever spoken with knows anything either? We take our trade secrets very seriously. The broadcast business can be cutthroat. It's dog eat dog. Do you think I'd be telling you all these things if I thought you might walk out of here and share this information with your husband, barber or bartender? Uh, I was wondering about that. Remember the Navy SEAL, hypnosis? Benjamin eases back and spreads his hands out, palms up. There you go. Wait, I say. You mean you're going to hypnotize me? Benjamin positively glows. It's really quite simple. When you leave, you won't recall anything we discussed. You mean when I walk out the door, I won't remember any of this? I shouldn't be surprised. It makes perfect sense. No details, says Benjamin quite reasonably. Can you imagine if we didn't take these measures? It would be terrible. First of all, once word got out on how things work, our ratings would take a tremendous hit. Much of the mystery would be gone. Secondly, it would be cruel. Would you want to always be looking over your shoulder? Some jobs are a year out. We would never participate in causing a client undue stress and suffering for that long a time. It's unconscionable. I see your point. Compassion is our calling, says Benjamin. I hit Benjamin with a skeptical eyebrow raise. So, at the risk of sounding repetitive, before I leave, you'll hypnotize me to forget that I was even here? Precisely. What if I came with someone? Same for them. I'm familiar with hypnosis. Not everyone is susceptible. Some people can be hypnotized, some can't. Technically, ours is a combination of hypnosis and biologicals. We believe in redundancy. 
And as I mentioned before, says Benjamin, ours is a much deeper, more powerful form of hypnosis. Everyone is susceptible, particularly with the aid of the biological element. That sounds dangerous, I say. What's to stop you guys from pulling a Manchurian candidate scenario? Programming someone to kill? Benjamin looks sincerely stung by this consideration. We would never do anything like that. Uh, Benjamin, that's what you guys do. You kill people for a living. There's a significant difference. We do not hypnotize anyone to do anything to which they would be morally opposed. Our terminations are all requested, between consenting adults, as it were, and legally sanctioned. However, I can understand your concern, but I can assure you that your suggestion is beyond the pale. The legal ramifications would be catastrophic. We'd lose our license. So you're saying even capitalism has its limits? Just so. But beyond that, it's a question of morality. We provide a service. I wasn't done yet. What if... I tap my chin, staring at the ceiling. Damn it, I was gonna find some hole if it was the last thing I did. What if I told someone I was coming? Aha, that person would know I was here, and when I came back with no memory of it, that could get really messy. Lots of questions. Again, my question appears to bounce off Benjamin harmlessly. As I mentioned earlier, the moment you arrive, you are scanned, and a full background report is generated. A team member has already checked your phone records to see who you've called within the last few weeks, and another team member has already gone to your home. So your goon squad shows up at my door to see if I spilled the beans to someone else that I was coming here, and if someone's there, you hypnotize them too? What if my confidant is a mixed martial arts champion and Green Beret who can kill you in 23 different ways in less than five minutes? Benjamin smiles without the least bit of condescension. We never resort to physical confrontations. If there is a person or persons, they will be hypnotized as well, but we use an application process that needs no hands-on involvement. You are a bit of a movie fan, yes? Yep. Did you ever see that old movie, Men in Black? Sure, on my classic movie, Vidfeed. The scenes with the flashy memory wiping thing, similar principle. Dang. As I mentioned, we take our security very seriously. Evidently, I'm fresh out of ammo. Benjamin pauses a moment and fixes me with an earnest and utterly pretension-free gaze. Why have you chosen to see us? My eyes flick to one side as I consider the question in Benjamin's lavender-scented office. Why have I chosen to see them? The question I knew I would have to answer eventually, but not yet. I have my reasons. Benjamin nods slowly, guilelessly. His eyes turn down, passing over his tablet for the briefest of instances. For your brother, I assume. I am not prepared for this comment. How do you know about my brother? Benjamin doesn't blink. He holds my gaze with astonishing compassion. I told you, the moment you arrive, you are scanned, and a full background report is generated. He glances at the glass tablet on his desk, which I assume holds said report. He sees my eyes dart to the tablet and gives a small smile. I have only a short bio, not much really, a bird's eye view, as it were. 
You scanned me? Of course you did. When are any of us not being scanned these days? I say, torn between being miffed and impressed by his candor. And it's all perfectly legal. Absolutely. We take great pains to stay well within the laws of the land. Courtesy of a vast and well-seasoned legal department, I would imagine. Just so, says Benjamin. As a matter of fact, scanning and phone record access became legal, I believe, 11 years ago. About a year before we went on the air, about the same time monopolistic laws were loosened. In your favor, I point out. Indeed, Benjamin smiles. I've often wondered why you guys are the only game in town. You'd think with all your success there would be copycat shows galore by now. Benjamin offers a paternal smile. As you said, we engage a healthy number of lawyers. Very expensive, very clever, very good lawyers. Even lawyers have to eat, I say, before pausing for a moment. I wasn't ready to give up yet. You said that when I leave, I'll have no memory of being here. Okay, fine. But the thought that I wanted to come here in the first place, that desire will have been in my head. So it's fair to assume that I will consider it again at some point. Suppressed, says Benjamin in an almost offhand manner. You have to understand, we have mastered this technology, methodology, whatever you wish to call it, to such a degree that we can manipulate thoughts with almost surgical precision. We suppress the desire to the point that the applicant will never consider it again. Once you leave here, whether you choose to go through with the process or not, for the rest of your life, the thought of coming here will never again cross your mind. Ever. This sounds pretty sci-fi, I say. I have a hard time believing you can manipulate a person's thoughts to that degree. And as a mentalist, that's my stock and trade. You'd be surprised. Benjamin patiently waits for me to ask more questions, but I am fresh out. Well, almost. So what do we do now? Shall I take that as your confirmation that you still wish to move forward with the process? This was it, the moment I'd been considering for months now. Fish or cut bait? Am I really prepared to do this? The thought vanishes almost as fast as it had appeared. I know the answer. I'd weighed the pros and cons in my head a thousand times over, and I always came to the same conclusion. Rock and roll. Benjamin gives me the warmest, most soothing smile imaginable. He walks around the desk and, get this, takes a knee right there next to my chair. He looks up into my eyes in the way that every woman hopes is followed by a little box and a diamond ring, takes my hand in his and says, I want to tell you how proud I am of you. I know this is not a decision you've made lightly, and if you are chosen for the show, the world will be a lesser place without you. But rest assured, something remarkable will come from it. Lives will be changed in ways you've probably never even fathomed. You are going to make a difference, a tremendous difference. I am not a crier, not one little bit. It takes serious Hallmark Channel sap for me to even offer up a sniffle. The opening sequence in that old animated movie, Up, where we see the entire relationship play out between the old man and old lady from the time they met as little kids until the day she dies. Probably the last time I needed a hanky. Well, no, there were two other times, but still. 
The valves on my waterworks are well rusted shut from lack of use. Until now, with those remarkable eyes and that absurdly real sincerity, I lose it. And I am not the least bit ashamed. It feels good to do a little bawling. I think I am, this is going to sound weird, but feeling something, something real and powerful. Wouldn't you know it, the moment I decide to pull the plug is the moment I feel most alive. Exactly like the Navy SEAL I mocked. Irony's a bitch. Chapter Two I punch in the key code to my apartment and hear the familiar snick of the deadbolt releasing. I walk in and behold the beauty that is my home, all 800 square feet of it. I've been living here for, it's gotta be going on 13 years now. I grew up in Portland, but after my mom died, I knew it was time to start fresh. Not that I would ever leave my lovely stump town. Evidently, around the turn of the century, the town's unofficial slogan was, keep Portland weird. I'm glad to say my city has not lost its quirky identity. It's perfect for me. When I began my search for new digs, I just drove around town with my brother riding shotgun. We'd drive through a neighborhood and he'd ask, this one? And I'd say, nope. On to the next neighborhood. Him, well, me, nope. The next, him, I'm not going to even bother asking, me, good. Eventually, we cruised by this old brick apartment building and my spidey senses lit up like a Christmas tree. My brother took one look at my face, sighed and said, when do you need me to help you move in? The small brass sign bolted to the street facing wall boasted the name the Royal Arms. How can you not wanna live in an old brick building called the Royal Arms? I rushed straight into the rental office and offered some variation of, shut up and take my money, apartment sight unseen. I'm kind of stupid that way. The apartment manager, an old, short, bent over guy with a name I will remember for the rest of my life, simply because it's an awesome name, Ronaldo Perini, led me up the stairs to the second floor, third door on the right. I peeked in gave the room an unnecessary once-over, and before I uttered a word, my brother looked at the manager and said, she'll take it. My apartment is honestly nothing to write home about, but it fits me. It is the equivalent of that pair of jeans you find in a thrift shop for $20 that are your precise waist and inseam, and already broken in. I toss my coat on my once upon a time emerald green knockoff of a knockoff of a Chippendale sofa that's covered with pillows, way too many for the space, and flick on my off-brand Tiffany-esque lamp that promptly cozies up the space with a soft, warm glow. I glance down at my optic to see if there is something pressing that I need to attend to. Nothing. I flop on the couch and take in the row of movie posters hung on the opposite wall, a mechanical engineer couldn't have spaced them more precisely, which satisfies me immensely. Some would call me OCD. I prefer CDO because the letters are in the proper alphabetical order, as they should be. Another reason I'm a tad obsessive is because it leaves less things to chance. I like predictability, order. If someone moves my shit around, am I going to freak out? No but I will most likely put it back in its proper place once my guest leaves. Manners trump tidy. 
my head swivels to my work table, also known as my dining table. It's covered with papers, pencils, scissors, paper clips, and the like, but I always leave an open space just large enough for a plate. However, at this moment, the eating space is bare. I will soon rectify that as my tumbly is feeling a bit crumbly. My eyes pass over my scattered paperwork, and I absentmindedly suck on my index finger's previous night's paper cut. I'm no artist, but my sketches are clear enough to capture the intent of my project. The prominent shape is a big rectangle surrounded by two Saturn-like rings that crisscross. Surrounding the shapes are assorted measurements and brief notes describing what is what. I could have done all the drawing and schematic work on my optic or tablet, but I'm too tactile for that. I can still be awfully analog in a digital world. The drawings are the early stages of what I affectionately refer to as my one serious boyfriend. I call him Bosco, not named after an old movie star that I know of. Bosco is my pet project. Bosco is not a person, he is a thing. He will soon be a part of my act. Another stomach growl redirects my focus to more pressing matters, Dindin. In my laughably small kitchen space, I grab a packet of ramen from a cabinet, drop it into a pan of water, and set it on the stove. High heat, three minutes, please, Charlie. Yes, I named my stove Charlie, and programmed him to have a charming British accent. Everything that I can program to talk back has a name. The stove is Charlie, the shower is Orson, the video and audio system is Spencer. All men, all named after old movie stars. The technology isn't such that the boys can carry on deep conversations with me, but there is enough code in them that we can have a reasonable back and forth. The fact that they can talk is probably why I say please when I ask for something. Yeah, I know, they're inanimate, but still, it's the way I was raised. Growing up, my mom said on more than one occasion, I don't care if my kids are heroin addicts or criminals, but they will be well-mannered. I'm pretty sure she was kidding about the heroin and crime, but the point was well taken. A few seconds later, Charlie gives me a whistle and tells me my ramen is ready. I fish the ramen out of the pot and into a bowl, grab a fork and almost make it as far as the couch, before I realize I've forgotten the most important element of the meal. I scurry back to the fridge and take out a chilled bottle of white wine. A Pinot Grigio, I think. Frankly, I'm not sure. I check the label. Yep, Pinot it is. I grab a glass out of the cupboard and pour a heaping helping. My cupboard is probably the loneliest cupboard on the planet. Inside, you will find two plates, two bowls, two drinking glasses, and two wine glasses. It's the Noah's Ark of tableware. The drawer with my flatware is equally sad. And the only reason I even keep a second set of anything is the rare occasion I have a guest over, usually my brother. I'm not big on entertaining. Well, at least when I'm not on stage. Back at my work table, I jab my fork into the ramen and give it a spin to collect a mouthful. Some people like to use chopsticks for eating ramen. Personally, I think that's nuts. I'm not Japanese, don't plan on eating in Japan anytime soon, and frankly prefer to get the food into my mouth. I tried chopsticks once and concluded that eating should not be a chore. Halfway through my meal, I decide that I don't feel like working tonight. 
so I put in a call to my BFFH, best friend for hire. It's something I did on a whim, signing up for the service, and I have to say, I love it. From where I'm sitting, BFFHs are the greatest thing since screw-top wine bottles. You pay a set fee, select what kind of friend you want, girl, boy, straight, gay, tall, short, blonde, brunette, sports fan, opera lover, whatever, and they show up anytime you like. Don't get the wrong idea. BFFHs can't be used for, shall we say, more intimate relations. That's against the law and creepy. You can kill people on live TV, but screw a BFFH? There are some things you just don't do. My BFFH's name is Audrey. I have no idea if that's her real name. My hunch is it's not. The agency probably fed my profile into a computer, and it spit out an old Hollywood name. I'm predictable that way. I speak to my in-house optic, Spencer. Hey, Spence, call Audrey. Will do, says Spence in his typically gruff but friendly manner. I programmed his voice to have a twinge of Wisconsin in it, so it's hard for him to ever sound anything but friendly. A few seconds later, Audrey's face pops up on my wall video screen. Frankie, what's up, love? Audrey has short, dark hair and the most gorgeous hazel green eyes imaginable. They're big, almond-shaped, and impossible to ignore. I peg her at late 20s, a smidge younger than me, still young enough to have her looks, old enough to have a clue. Her voice has a slight British accent, but I can't tell if it's authentic or affected. Again, with BFFHs, you're never sure what's real and what's not. I feel like a movie, I say. Well, that's a surprise, isn't it, says Audrey. Let me guess, the mission. The mission is Portland's oldest movie house, and just a few blocks away. It only plays old movies and is my favorite place in the world. Nothing gets past you, I say. When? Half hour, I ask. Brilliant, says Audrey, and her face vanishes from the screen without so much as a buy your leave. I like that about Audrey. She doesn't screw around. The theater is about a five-minute walk, and I still have half a glass of Pinot to consider, so I decide to zen out for a spell. Spence, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, first cut. I like old music, too. Roger that, says Spence. For the next 15 minutes, I drift on a white wine cloud and listen to the dulcet tones of Speak to Me, Breathe, On the Run, and Time. I pause it there. If I'm going to listen to the next cut, the great gig in the sky, I want to have the necessary time to fully appreciate it. And a fresh bottle. I find Audrey waiting outside the mission's front doors, sitting on one of the fire hydrants that have been painted red, white, and blue for the summer's upcoming tricentennial celebration. Audrey is chewing gum, giving her the look of someone 10 years younger. Maybe I should try that. Of course, it also gives her the look of someone 50 IQ points lower. Forget what I said about trying that. Audrey likes to dress a bit punky. Despite the northwest winter chill, she's wearing cut-off denim shorts over fishnet stockings, black boots, and a jean jacket over a colorful t-shirt with a logo of a band I'm not familiar with. With clothing like that, you would expect her to go the whole Megilla with extra heavy makeup, tats, and piercings. She has none of that. It gives her the ability to clean up well. 
she greets me with a girlfriend hug and asks what we're seeing. Terminator, I say. I'm guessing you've seen it before, yeah? She asks, already knowing the answer. Yep, have you seen it? Nuh-uh, what's it about? Time travel, cyborgs, saving civilization, a cute blonde guy, I say. Sold. We go inside, arm in arm. The mission is not your typical movie theater. Half the seats on the main floor are love seats and couches. Old, threadbare, comfy, like me. The rest of the space is filled with tables and chairs. Because at the mission, you don't just watch movies, you also eat and drink. Usually burgers and booze. Yeah, I know, most of the still existing theaters serve food and cocktails nowadays. In fact, they seem to have overcompensated. Most theaters now are like flying first class with crab cocktail, martinis, and recliners with thousand fingers massage. The mission doesn't go in for such snooty niceties. The vibe is different. It's got old bones. It's a little nicked up, just like me. It's, wait for it, cozy. It's the movie theater equivalent of a bar that's got peanut shells all over the floor. No pretense. Audrey and I pull up to the bar and back and place our orders. The burly beef and a Hefeweizen for me, and popcorn, of course. Can't watch a movie without popcorn. I say please and thank you. Audrey orders a slice of pepperoni and a cherry seltzer. How she can stand that stuff is beyond me. It's so bland, it's the taste equivalent of someone yelling cherry from the next room. It tastes like video static. I insist on paying, but Audrey is having none of that. We end up doing rock, paper, scissors to settle things. I take two out of three, winning the last round with an unexpected paper to beat her rock. In short order, our food and drinks slide across the bar to us, and we find a deep red love seat with a low thrift store coffee table in front of it. My favorite spot, two-thirds of the way back from the screen, about 10 feet right of center. I'm surprised they haven't mounted a commemorative plaque on it in my honor with all the times I've sat there. We've still got a few minutes before the sneak previews, so we dive into our food. It occurs to me for the millionth time that I've never seen Audrey drink before. Alcohol, I mean. You'd think that would be mandatory for a BFFH, a friend to commiserate with over a drink. But no, Audrey has all the earmarks of a teetotaler, which is fine by me. I can easily make up the difference if push comes to shove. We eat in comfortable silence, and before long, the lights dim. I settle back into the love seat, kick my feet up on the table, and spend the next couple of hours absentmindedly tossing several hundred pieces of popcorn into my mouth. After Sarah Connor drives off into the desert in her dusty Jeep, with her trusty German Shepherd and cool 80s headband, en route to Terminator 2, the lights come up, and the sparse crowd begins milling toward the exits. These old movies don't pack them in like the contemporary films. Most here are cinephiles, diehards, or people with nothing better to do on a Wednesday night, just like me. Outside, Audrey asks me what else I feel like doing. I tell her I'm going to get a toasty caffeinated beverage with gallons of sugar. At your regular joint, she asks. Yep, I say. Like a good BFFH, she already knows I prefer going solo and doesn't ask to join. Well then, any parting wisdom for me?
It's a thing we have. I leave her with an inspirational quote, like what a parent might write on a kid's lunch bag. Do not mistake temptation for opportunity, I say sagely. Sorry, me and temptation have got a good thing going, and I'm not about to mess with it. Suit yourself, I say. See you round. Audrey gives an overly exaggerated curtsy, spins on her heel, and heads off into the night. Chapter 3. The Chat with Myrna. Benjamin leaves me in a room that is slightly larger than his office, but with no desk. Just a couch, two exceedingly comfortable-looking overstuffed chairs, a coffee table, a lovely mica-shaded standing lamp, and my grandmother. Okay, she isn't really my grandmother, but she might as well be, other than the fact that my grandmother has been dead for 20 years and was white. The woman in the room couldn't be a day under 70, but holds herself with such poise and assurance, I can't take my eyes off her. Her hair is pure white, knotted up in a perfect pun. She isn't wearing what I'd call a business outfit, but her clothes are professional, with a cut and fabric that portray no severity whatsoever. Her dark and surprisingly smooth-looking hands are clasped in front of her, and she wears the world's most disarming grin. And, of course, her eyes are like polished mahogany surrounded by crinkly laugh lines. I half expect her to whip out a pan of brownies. Meet Myrna, the kindliest-looking woman on God's green earth. So, now we talk, she says. Okay, I say, trying to sound casually confident. What shall we talk about? Literature, film, fine wine? There goes my snark again. Damn it. Myrna glances at her glass tablet, identical to Benjamin's, and taps on it a few times, looking down through her reading glasses. She's looking over my file. I prefer to think of it as a dossier. Sounds more mysterious. That's me, Frankie, international woman of mystery. I look more closely at the tablet, hoping I can see something. I mean, it is transparent, but it's been crafted so that text or images can't be seen from the opposite side. The thing's probably company issue and has a tracking chip in it so that if anyone tries to take it out of the building, alarms go off and security personnel rappel down from the ceiling. I think perhaps I see too many movies. Myrna finally glances back up at me over her glasses. They are orange. The frames, I mean, leaning more toward tangerine. The color complements her dark complexion beautifully. Again, probably selected by a consultant. Not many people need glasses anymore. The eye surgery is supposedly painless, but I'm a big chicken. And those that do still use readers usually go frameless, most likely to make them as invisible as possible. Not Myrna. Those tangerine frames are drawing attention. Hey, look at me, they're saying. Don't I look wise and matronly? The answer, a resounding yep. Myrna gives her head a subtle yet elegant tip to the right. It looks natural, but I can't help but think it's practiced. A look of sincere curiosity. Tell me about your job, she says. I've been asked about my job a zillion times over the years. Understandably, I have an unusual profession, exotic. As such, I've got the elevator pitch down cold. 
I'm a mentalist, I say. A performing artist where I use observation and conversation to guess what people are thinking and perhaps manipulate their actions. Like a psychic, asks Myrna. Sometimes, yeah, there are similarities, I say. Most people think of us as magicians doing tricks. Do you think the things you do are tricks? That depends on your definition of a trick, I say. If you take the power of suggestion and observation for tricks, then yeah, I do. But I don't. I consider them talents. Good answer, says Myrna with a sweet smile and a nod. The fact that I said something that makes Myrna smile fills me with immense satisfaction. I can see why she has this job. You want to tell her things. She'd be a great interrogator. I already know what her next question is going to be. Everyone asks that same question. Myrna doesn't disappoint. Can you tell me what I'm thinking right now, she asks. I close my eyes tight, hamily place my fingers to my temples, and say, you're thinking this woman sitting across from you is full of crap. Touche. It's okay, I say. Nothing I haven't heard before. How did you fall into this line of work, asks Myrna. The million dollar question. I could probably come up with a clever lie, something much more interesting than the truth. But Myrna is not someone you lie to. I think I'd feel cheap and ashamed if I tried coloring an answer. I've tossed out some whoppers on how I got into the biz over the years. One time when this douchey jerkwad was patronizing me, I told him with an absolutely straight face, mind you, that it all happened when I was in prison. Never happened. Just after getting out of three weeks in the hole for busting open some gangbanger's head who tried to cheat me in a game of pinnacle, the gangbanger's bitch shivved me with a sharpened toothbrush handle. I told jerkwad that I lost two pints of blood, was in a coma for five days, and when I came to, I magically had the gift of second sight. Douchebag left me alone after that. But for Myrna, I cop to the boring ass truth. I've always been observant, even as a kid, I say. My eyes involuntarily shift up and left, the body's default memory reaction, as I begin picturing my six-year-old self. Before I would talk to another kid, I would watch them for a good 10 minutes. How's that for creepy? But I was gathering information. I'd read their body language, the way they'd stand, the way they'd talk, their tone of voice, what they were wearing. I didn't know the term at the time, but I was already focusing on people's micro expressions, the little twitches and looks in certain directions. And I'd use that information to form a step-by-step -step route to what they might be thinking. Do you find some people are more susceptible than others? Asked Myrna. Absolutely. If I get a douchey guy, somebody trying to look cool in front of their friends, and I ask them to pick a random letter, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be X, Q, or C. Why? Asks Myrna, seriously curious. I shrug. They are heavily sexualized letters, and he's a douche. That's it? Asks Myrna, a little disappointed. Sometimes you can't overthink things, I say. But she wouldn't make him choose one of those letters through suggestion. That was simply an educated guess. Correct, I say. I just took past experiences and put two and two together. My real bread and butter, though, is cold reading. That's where the fun is. Cold reading, asks Myrna. 
I can tell she is completely fascinated, which makes me feel like a million bucks. It's also called the Barnum Effect, named after the old circus showman P.T. Barnum, way back when they had circuses. It's where people believe what they are told is specific to them, but it could apply to most anyone. You make statements that are vague, and people put their own meaning into the statement, making them personal. I could say to you, for example, that you have a great need for other people to like and admire you, and that you tend to be critical of yourself, and that you often have great ideas that you never have the motivation to follow through on. I look directly at Myrna now. Would that be accurate for you? Myrna shakes her head with amazement. Spot on. Of course it is. I laugh. 95% of the human population can relate to those comments. Just like that, I'm a mind reader. Myrna smirks a bit and looks back down at the glass tablet, moving down her checklist, I presume. I use the opportunity to redirect. Clearly, you already know a lot about me, so why are we even having this discussion? Myrna is not bothered by my question, or if she is, she's not showing it. True, we have a file on you, but it's only surface material, government issue. It's my responsibility to get to know you better, to create a personality profile, and to determine your ratings viability. And to make sure I'm not a nut job, I ask. Myrna smiles again. As I'm sure Benjamin told you, we need to assure you are of sound mind and body. This is a major commitment. Life-changing, I add with a smirk of my own. Life-ending, says Myrna, a little more solemnly than I would have preferred. It's my responsibility to fully understand your mental state, or at least understand it as much as I can during our time here. But can you really get a true sense of who I am in a few hours? If you were my therapist and we were seeing each other twice a week for a few years, yeah, I think you'd know me pretty well. But just chatting like this, I'm not seeing it. Myrna removes her glasses, grabs the hem of her blouse, absentmindedly cleans the lenses with it, and says with a mischievous grin, You'd be surprised how much I can learn. Something in her eyes gives me pause. I glance around the office for a moment, and then back to Myrna. I'm being monitored right now, aren't I? A statement, not a question. Myrna simply smiles and nods. My breathing, heart rate, body temperature, eye movement, my vitals showing up on your tablet there. A nod. I nod back and do a slow clap. Well done, well done. A lie detector test. Among other things, says Myrna, setting her glasses back upon the bridge of her nose. I lean in conspiratorially and whisper, how am I doing so far? Myrna plays along and whispers back, so far, so good. We both enjoy the moment. I sink back into my chair and stare up at the ceiling. I wonder how many people are watching and listening right now. I picture a sterile white room with a team of serious-looking men and women in lab coats, their fingers poised over their tablets, ready to take note of anything that catches their attention. Sadly, I have nothing sexy to give them. It's almost like Myrna is reading my mind. She smoothly crosses one leg over the other, settling in. We have so much to talk about, and I'm sure you've got some fascinating stories to tell me. 
We'll see about that. What an introduction. It's scary to think of the lengths people will go to to make money. But then again, it's scarier to think of how this show takes advantage of that. Does Frankie have the stuff that will make millions tune into Death Warrant? What will happen if she's selected? Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to Death Warrant now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Brian Johnston on social media at Brian R. Johnston, and make sure you follow us at CamCatBooks. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.